Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37, as we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth, so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. The NASB says, And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Please be seated. So church, this morning, we're going to find ourselves reading about a scene where Jesus is in Capernaum. It's a city that still exists in modern-day Israel on the Sea of Galilee. And in order to understand where we are now in the Bible, Jesus preaching and teaching in Capernaum, we have to ask ourselves, how did we get here? And Jesus arrived in Capernaum from Nazareth. And in fact, Jesus' public ministry begins in Nazareth. And a couple of verses before, in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, we see the beginning of Jesus Christ's public ministry. He begins by going on a preaching tour. And in Christ's first sermon, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release 
to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. Now we're in Capernaum. What do we see Jesus doing? He's still preaching, but he's not talking about releasing people. He's actually releasing people. He's not talking about restoring spiritual sight. He's actually restoring spiritual sight. He's not talking about setting people free. He's setting people free from the strongholds of demonic possession. Church, we don't serve a Savior who just talks about doing stuff. We serve a Savior who executes. We serve a Savior who does. And in our verses this morning, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37, we bear witness to the power of Jesus Christ. Not just power in word, but also in deed. Specifically, the power of Christ in the spiritual realm. And the verses we're going to read this morning are very, very important. How do I know that? Because God repeats himself three times. These verses, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37, have parallel accounts in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17, and Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. The point is, pay attention because God himself found it worthy to repeat himself. Our verses begin, verse 31, and he and Jesus came down to Capernaum. Jesus comes down to Capernaum from Nazareth, but this is not happenstance. Jesus did not wake up one day, roll some dice and say, hmm, I wonder where I'm going to go next. The reason why he went from Nazareth to Capernaum was to fulfill prophecy. The prophet Isaiah, who existed hundreds of years before these events happened, in chapter 9 of his book, looked down in the corridor of time and predicted that the Messiah would move from Nazareth to Capernaum. And Matthew tells us about this prophecy in his parallel account. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17 says, Now when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Church, when this text says that Jesus came down to Capernaum, that also implies that Jesus left Nazareth. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the great light 
that the people in Capernaum saw. But what this text also tells us is that when his great light left Nazareth, the light was now in Capernaum, meaning what? Now Nazareth was in the dark. So this text tells us that Jesus not only visited the church at Capernaum, he abandoned, he left the church at Nazareth. Why did Jesus leave Nazareth? Answer, because the people kicked him out. In verses 20 to 30, what was it that Jesus did? What was it that was so offensive to the Nazarenes that they found it fitting to kick Jesus out of town and try to murder him. Jesus had the nerve, Jesus had the audacity to preach the truth of God. In verses 20 to 30, Jesus exposits his sermon and talks about the sovereignty of God. In other words, that God is in charge. And the church at Nazareth found that doctrine offensive because if God is in charge, guess what? That means you are not. If God is sovereign, that means man is not. And so many folks find that doctrine offensive. The church at Nazareth did not appreciate the fact that God was in their midst. They wanted Jesus to perform for them. They wanted Jesus to do a miracle for them, but when he didn't, but preached the truth of God, God's word, they said, Jesus, get out of here. And here's the irony. The church at Nazareth were upset when God was there. When God left, now they're happy. The church of Nazareth was in an uproar. They were unsettled when God was in their midst. But the minute the light moves and now they're in darkness, now they're content. Now they can go back to their tradition. Now they can go back to their ritualism. Now they don't have any more divine truth that's going to unsettle them and make them feel uncomfortable. Now, when I read this story about Jesus, it gives me personally a sense of comfort because it tells me that every honest Bible teacher is one sermon away from being kicked out of town. You may like someone for 10 years, you may like someone for 20 years, but let him speak that one sermon let him preach that divine truth that you don't like, and you may find yourself trying to kick God's truth out of town. So Jesus came down to Capernaum because he left Nazareth. Now guess what? In the rest of Luke's gospel, for the rest of the entire book, it never says that Jesus goes back to Nazareth, meaning when the light left, Nazareth stayed in the dark. Luke refers to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, but never says that, the Lord and, that our Lord and Savior ever returns home. Verse 31 says, And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Mark says almost the same thing. In chapter 1, verse 22, Mark says, They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority 
and not as the scribes. The scribes were students of the scriptures that would read and then explain scriptures to people. But when they gave their interpretations, they did so based on someone else's authority. They would reference rabbi number one, they would reference rabbi number two, they would reference a particular Jewish tradition. But when Jesus now, God in the flesh, teaches the scriptures, he didn't rely on other men. He would tell the people, I say unto you. And the text says that Jesus was, was teaching with authority. That word in English comes from a Greek word, exousia. It's a combination of two different words. Ex, a prefix, means from or out of. Usia means substance or essence. So Jesus was speaking with authority, with power, as a function of something from or out of his essence or nature. And that essence or nature, beloved, is divine. It's omnipotent. It's omniscient. So, of course, when God speaks from his own divine, all-powerful nature... That will be appreciated by mere men as authority, as power. And the difference now between the church at Capernaum and the church at Nazareth is that it was the same Jesus. It was the same word. But what the Holy Spirit does is he opens the hearts and minds of particular audiences to receive the word of God so they recognize it for what it really is, sovereign, divine truth. Now, we may not have Jesus sitting right here in front of us right now, but we have his word. And the word of God never for a second loses its power because the source of that power is God himself. The source of God's power isn't like a battery. It doesn't run out. It's eternal. It's everlasting. And it's all-powerful. And the word of God, his word is effectual because it never returns to God void. God's word is what created the earth upon which we're standing. God's word is what made the sun, which makes heat. God's word is what formed the heavens above and the seas below. And that same word is what the church still has to this day. God's word still has power and it never has lost a drop. And the text says that Jesus was teaching on the Sabbath. Luke likes telling us that Jesus loved spending his Sabbath days in the synagogue teaching the word of God. Because on the Sabbath, church, God made the Sabbath for us. He made it as a means by which we would not only rest our bodies by stopping work. He designed it for a day when we can also restore and rest our souls and have spiritual restoration. How many people in this day and age use Sunday to rest their bodies but not their souls? How many people use Sundays just to sleep in 
to catch up on lost sleep, but don't sit under the preaching and teaching of the word. How many people rest their bodies on Sunday, but their minds are still restless? How many people rest their bodies on Sunday, but their spirits are still disturbed? Are you anxious? Do you feel unfulfilled? Do you feel as if life isn't giving you what you expected? I agree with you. You should feel that way. If your soul and spirit are not being restored and renewed by sitting under the word on the Sabbath. We do not serve our Lord and Savior so that we are satisfied, but one of the means by which God has created that our souls and our spirits will be restored so we will be a whole, complete person is by sitting under his teaching on the Sabbath, tapping into a power source that is divine, all-satisfying, and eternal. Verse number 32 says, 33, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. Time out. Let's stop right here. We have now entered a completely different realm of systematic theology. Because Luke mentions the word demon. So we're now going to enter into a study and analysis of demonology. Now when the, di- when the Bible talks about demons, it can say demon, it can say evil spirits, and it can say unclean spirits. And before I go diving into the doctrine, let's make sure we know where we're going. Because on the one hand, the Bible brought this up, right? I didn't make this up. The, Luke brought up the word demon. It's in the Bible. So if we don't study or know something about demons, we're not being biblical. But on the other hand, if we go too hard, too fast, and begin overemphasizing the study and analysis of demons, we're also not being biblical. Why do I say that? Because when you look at the amount of real estate the Bible devotes to talking about demons or Satan, it's not that much. You have a peak in Genesis 3 where Satan via the serpent tempts Eve. You have another peak in the Gospels and the book of Acts. And then you have a final peak in the book of Revelation. But from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God does not spend that much time talking to us about demons. And I say all that to say, church, the primary focus biblically is always Jesus Christ. It's always faith in him, and it's also walking lives in pursuit of holiness and obedience. This is why the equipment that God gives us to fight spiritual battles is not offensive, it's defensive. God gives us spiritual armor, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17, that we may stand firm and resist. Using figurative language now, God's design is that our spiritual immune systems grow that it becomes stronger and stronger and more robust 
and the thing that nourishes, that supplies our spiritual immune systems is the truth of God's Word. Because when we live on a diet that is saturated in God's truth, we will now become more and more resistant to Satan's lies. Translation, don't go chasing after funny ideas and demons. C.S. Lewis says it best in his classic work of fiction, The Screwtape Letters, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. End quote. So Luke, so Luke uses the word demon. What is a demon? A demon is a created spiritual being. But note, God never made demons. God made angels, and then a particular subset of angels revolted and rebelled against God. They fell, and now they became demons. And the creation story of demons can be found in the book of Revelation, 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude verse 6. Demons know exactly who God is. Demons know exactly who Jesus is, but demons hate God. So what do demons do? They are hostile to God. They are hostile to his works, and they are hostile to his people. Luke calls this evil spirit unclean, and that uncleanliness stands in contrast to the pure, perfect holiness of God himself. Demons operate in our world to achieve the purposes of Satan, who is the prince of demons, Matthew 12, 24. Nothing good ever comes from demons. Demons are never constructive. They are destructive. Church, understand something. Demons hate you. They abhor you. They hate you. They hate your spouse. They hate your children. They hate your church. They hate your elders. They hate your pastor. And they want you and everyone around you to die. Their goal is to murder you, whether it's quickly or slowly. I want you to imagine the most visceral, dark feeling or emotion you have ever had. Multiply that by a thousand. That doesn't come close to the abhorrence, the force, the kingdom of darkness has for the children of light. Demons never create anything of value because they can't. They can't create. Demons are spiritual parasites, and their purpose is to destroy what God has already made. How do they do that? By living by the mantra, by any means necessary. They use lies, John 8, 44. They use deception, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, Revelation 12, 9. And they use murder, Psalm 106, 37. And they do all that in order to blind unbelievers to the truth, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. 
demons' deception is subtle because they work their best when they pretend to be religious, when they pretend to be spiritual. In fact, the Bible tells us that demons are so crafty, they even have their own doctrines. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And you can always tell a doctrine is demonic when it always tells you Christ isn't good enough. A satanic doctrine always minimizes the supremacy and the lordship of Christ. It's always Christ and something else. It's always Christ and the church. It's Christ and works. It's Christ and your prosperity. It's Christ and a new special revelation. It's Christ and a secret knowledge which now gets you into heaven. What demons do is that they may cause violent behavior. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 29. Demons may also cause bodily disease. Matthew 12, 22, Luke 13, 11. Now watch what I said. I did not say the reason why you have arthritis is because of a demon. I did not say the reason why your family member has a mental illness is because of a demon. What I said is demons may, in some instances, cause bodily disease. Simply put, demons are involved in every part of Satan's program. They oppose God. They prevent people from understanding the gospel. They oppose God's people. They attack the church, and they tempt people to sin. But Christian, make sure you and I understand one another. We do not need demons or Satan to sin. We're perfectly capable of doing that ourselves. The line, the devil made me do it, does not exist in the Bible. You sinned because you wanted to, and now you're using the devil as a cop-out. Just as God is a spirit that uses his own agents and works in and through people in the kingdom of light. The devil is a spirit that has his own agents and works in and through people in the kingdom of darkness. Okay, great. So now we know what demons are and what they do. How do they do it? How do they specifically operate? I'm glad you asked. There are two basic ways. One is general, one is more specific. Demons operate by making an impression. They try to mold, they try to shape your particular view of reality and your worldview. Romans 12, 2, Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. This is why modern media is so powerful particularly forms of entertainment or music that we consume because that media has the power of suggestion. And that suggestion can now make an impression on your mind and how you see the world. You can begin just by mere exposure of thinking of something as normal. 
You can begin, if you see or hear something often enough, you can think that now right is wrong and now wrong is right and your entire system of morality is now going to be challenged. But then there is a more direct route how they operate. They can operate by influence. First Timothy 4.1, perfect example. A demon can commission a messenger who will stand where I'm sitting, will stand where I'm standing, and preach false doctrine. Being animated and inspired by a satanic force, then a demon will whisper in your ear sitting in the pew and say, this is really true. This is the word of God. And they'll incorporate and induce other people to convince you what this false teacher is saying is actually true. Now you actually believe this satanic doctrine is not only true, but the word of God. So how they work is by impression and influence. Now that's broad, that's general. That applies to the world at large. People who are out of the church and in the church. People who are not saved, people who are saved. When we're talking about Christians now, we always remember that demons are created and their power is limited by God. And those who are regenerated, those who are in Christ, are now enabled by him to resist not chase after, not slay, not defeat. We are now empowered by Christ to resist the forces of darkness. James 4, 7, 1 Peter 5, 8 to 9. Can a demon make you unsaved? Nope. Can a demon drive a wedge between you and your heavenly father? Nope. But what a demon can do is try to make is try to make you as ineffective a Christian as possible. If you are a regenerated true Christian, you may find yourself being the victim of demonic oppression. What word did I use? I said oppression. I did not say possession. You may find yourself the victim of demonic oppression. What does that mean? It means now a demon working as an external agent on the outside may try to nudge you, may try to make an impression, may try to influence you. How do they do that? Well, that's easy. Unbelief, anger, pride, envy, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion. They'll whisper in your ear and say, did God really say that? They'll whisper in your ear and say, did God really mean what he's saying in his word? They'll whisper in your ear and say, should you really be here? Do you really have to learn about demons in church? Shouldn't you go home right now? And because the demons whisper, they never shout. They'll delude you into thinking that whisper isn't them. They'll delude you into thinking it was your own idea. So where's the biblical proof? What biblical evidence is there that regenerated people can be victims of demonic oppression? 2 Chronicles 21.1, David is nudged by Satan to 
count the men of Israel. 2 Corinthians 2.7, the Apostle Paul is tormented by a messenger of Satan. And what happens at the beginning of Luke 4? Jesus himself is what? He's tempted by the devil in the wilderness, where he's nudged, where he's prodded to do that which is outside of God's will. So can a genuine Christian be oppressed by a demon? The answer is yes. But what does our text say? Our text says, in the synagogue, there was a man possessed. Now the Bible uses different language to communicate the idea of demonic possession. It may say someone has a demon or evil spirit, Luke 7.33. It may refer to people who are demon-possessed or demoniacs, Luke 8.36. Or it may refer to people who simply are with or afflicted with an unclean spirit, Mark 7.25, Acts 5.16. So while demonic oppression refers to an external agent working from the outside, demonic possession now means someone is indwelt. They are now controlled by a demonic force. So now the personality of the individual is now eclipsed by that of the demon. And what's subsequently revealed is not their personality, it's the demon's personality who works in and through their will. And now their will is held captive. In Matthew 12, verses 43 to 45, Jesus talks about someone being possessed as the spirit entering in someone's house and now calling the shots from the inside. So can a true Christian be demon-possessed? The answer is no. Because as 1 John 5, 18 says, the evil one does not touch him. As John 10.29 says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. As Colossians 1.13 says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his dear or beloved Son. For greater is he that is in us that is in the world. And as 2 Corinthians 6.15-16 says, if we are the temple of the living God, what agreement is there between the spirit of light and the spirits of darkness? So that now gives the church an introduction to demonology. Now let's bring it all back. We're in Capernaum. It's the Sabbath. Jesus is teaching the Word of God in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And what happens? Jesus, who is the great light, who is preaching the truth, the light is now expanding. The light is now moving farther and farther out. And where there is light, that is now going to push back the forces of darkness. Let's zoom out for a second. If you walked into a church service today and bore witness 
to demonic activity. That does not necessarily mean something bad is going on. Why? As the text tells us, when, when God is active and the kingdom of light is expanding and pushing the forces of darkness back, they're not going to go away lightly. They're going to put up a fight. So when you witness demonic activity, the question now is, why is it happening? It may just mean that God is there. It may just mean that God is doing something. Because when a person is actually doing the will of God and light is expanding, that gets the devil's attention. And the more good church a person does in this life, the more challenges and the harder things will be. What you will never hear me preach about is how to navigate life when it's easy. I am never going to waste your time. What I will always preach and teach you about is how to navigate adversity because that's what's supposed to happen. The more mature and the closer you get to God, the harder and harder it's going to be. Martin Luther once said he wanted to be as famous in the kingdom of heaven as he was in hell. To which I say, yay and amen. Because when you're truly doing God's work, the kingdom of darkness is going to take notice. The text says, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. Yes, a demon met Jesus in church. We're in church. We're in the synagogue, and a man who was demon-possessed declared himself. But the fact that the demon actually said something was abnormal. Because the demons like to stay silent by design. That way no one knows who they really are. They can preach on a pulpit, and with their smooth, buttery talk, proclaim false doctrine. They can sit in the pews and gossip and slander and cause strife and divisions. They can go out on the mission field and try their hardest to make sure that no one actually gets saved. And the fact that the demon cried out also was irregular because, as I said, demons like to whisper. So you would never even think they were the ones that dropped that nugget of insight or presupposed insight into your ear. And what this demon says is, let us alone. That means this demon was being bothered. How was Jesus bothering this demon? By preaching the what? The word of God. By proclaiming the light. Church, realize something. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is good news to us. It's fantastic news because it tells us what God has done in, through his son to save his people. The gospel is horrible news to the devil. Demons find the gospel highly offensive and it's the worst news they could ever hear because anyone who responds to the gospel now means they are no longer under the power of the kingdom of darkness. When Jesus began his public ministry and was preaching the gospel, that was a declaration of war. It was a declaration 
that the king is now here, and therein so is his kingdom. And when the great light shines, the kingdom of darkness must recede. And this is a war that was continued by all of Christ's apostles and a war that is going on right now by churches all across God's green earth that do the same thing, preach and teach the word of God. Church, there is power in God's word. When Jesus went head to head with the devil in the wilderness, did he call down angels? No. Did he pull out a sword? No. Did he use any special tricks? No. He said over and over again, it is written, meaning the Bible says. The key, write this down, the key to spiritual warfare is not consulting a demonologist or using any funny tricks. The key to spiritual warfare is the truth of the Word of God. That is where true power is. That is the Word that made the world. That is the Word that God uses to change heart and minds. The key to spiritual warfare is the truth of God's Word. There is more power in one drop of God's truth than the Goliath of demons could ever wish for. Do you know who actually knows how powerful the Word of God is? Demons do. That's why they don't want you hearing it. That's why they'll try and delude your mind. That's why they'll try and silence true, genuine Bible teachers who get kicked out of town. But the demon exposes himself. He says, let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You know what this text tells us? That demons are actually rational. What I mean by that is, this demon articulated something intelligent. It made sense. Which means the demon not only understood what Jesus said, he now made a logical, rational response. He didn't, he didn't mumble crazy talk or something that was incomprehensible. And of course it is that way because if demons are going to delude by false doctrine, they have to be rational. They have to whisper things that at least superficially make sense. Church, realize something. When you see someone who's acting psychotic or is not acting rationally, biblically defined, that is not a sign of demonic possession because demons are rational in their understanding and their expression. Let's get some more proof. Acts 19.15, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? That's a rational statement. Mark 5 verses 7 to 9. This is the Gerasene demoniac. What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And the man said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. Was the demoniac acting strange? Yes, his behavior 
was abnormal. He was exhibiting, he was engaging in activities that were self-destructive, living in caves, demonstrating abnormal strength. But when you actually talk to him, he actually understood what you said and was able to make a rational response. So the next thing the demon says is, let us alone, what business do we have with each other? That's a figure of speech. The demon's basically saying, Jesus, why are you attacking us? The demon wants Jesus to leave them alone. Now tell me if this sounds familiar. Tell me if you know about or know someone or have heard about someone who wants God to leave them alone, who wants God to leave their doctrine, who wants God to leave their understanding, who wants God to leave their worldview, who wants God to leave their morality, who wants God to simply not bother them and leave them alone so they can do whatever they want to do while sitting in the corner in darkness. Church, demons find the truth of God offensive and want it to be silenced. And once you understand that reality, I hope that gives you some insights and clarity as to why the world is moving in the direction that it is. Because we live in a world now where speech is no longer free, where people regard the proclamation of the Bible as destructive and harmful, where it's labeled hate speech. What free speech actually is, church, is you are free to speech. You are free to say something. And when we accept what that is, that means someone can get up on a pulpit and preach the Bible. That also means someone can go somewhere else and say, I hate God, I hate the Bible, and I hate the church. But that's what free speech is. But the question we always have to ask ourselves is, if preaching the truth of God's word is labeled hate speech, who defines it's hateful? Because I guarantee you, the person who's making that call doesn't have an open Bible in their hand. What true hate speech actually is, is when you hate free speech. And the worldview that exists now is we are moving closer and closer where the proclamation of God's truth want the desires for it to be silenced so there's no counteracting. There's nothing to counteract the deception and the lie that will be proclaimed. But this demon asks a great question. He wants to know what business do the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light have with one another? And the answer is no business. There is no overlap. There is no gray area. Church, I want you to realize something. The most radical segregation policy in the entire cosmos exists in the church of God, where you have those of the light 
and you have those of the darkness. There is no overlap. There is no crossover. Everything that is of the light, there is truth, there is fellowship, and there is life. Everything that is of the darkness is marked for destruction. Are you a Christian? Yea and amen. Then what business do you have with the kingdom of darkness? What business does the church of God have with secular culture at large? Do you realize what Jesus does in these verses? He causes a fight in church. He causes a ruckus in church. He rebukes a demon, meaning he speaks down to the demon, he silences it, and as we're about to read, he causes that demon to leave the man, so now this man will be set free. We live in a day and age where people promote a tolerance of the flesh. And a tolerance of the flesh has nothing to do with unity of the Spirit. Evidence best by our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. As members of the Church of God, we are always going to fight for real, genuine, spiritual unity. But that never means having a no-truth regarding, all-inclusive, not-thinking, tolerance of the flesh. Because if we ever were to be in a church where demon-possessed people feel comfortable and don't say, let us alone, what type of church would that be? So yes, let us all pursue Holy Spirit-inspired unity, and that is pursued based upon God's truth that never has any business with the satanic lie. So the demon wants to know. He asks Jesus, have you come to destroy us? And the answer is yes. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. But notice what this demon says as well. He tells Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So not only are demons rational, they're also theological. They also know something about God. Remember, church, demons were once angels. Demons actually saw heaven. Demons actually saw God and are privy to particular heavenly realities that you and I are not, which is why in the synagogue, the one entity that probably knew the true identity of Christ better than anyone was this demon. When he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But as Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, this is one of the devil's old tricks. Because if you don't like the truth that's being proclaimed, what you can now do is simply try and compliment the speaker, which is a psychological trick. So you never have to allow whatever was taught and proclaimed to apply to you. Now you can compliment the speaker and say, good word, preacher. That was a good one. Hit it out of the park. And now you leave church, go home, and never think about that sermon again. And as John Calvin says, what does this demon say? He calls Jesus the Holy One of God, and he's right. But you know what this demon will never do? He'll never fall down and worship Jesus. 
Oh yeah, demons can get their theology right. They'll say Jesus is the Son of God. They'll say he's the Messiah. They'll say he's, he rose from the dead. But what they'll never do is bow down and worship him. In two weeks, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, where the Apostle Peter, well, before he was the Apostle Peter, he sees Jesus do a miracle. And what does Peter do? He falls down. And he recognizes the majesty and the deity of Christ. Peter, at that point, probably didn't know that much Bible, but he knew that Jesus Christ was Lord. Although this demon could say all these wonderful theological truths, what he would never do is bow down and worship the Messiah for who he truly is. As John Calvin once said, what this demon is trying to do is to shroud its own darkness in the light and glory of Christ. Because the end of the day, church, it doesn't really matter what we say. It matters who we are. It doesn't really matter what we say. It matters how we live our lives. Verse 35. But Jesus rebuked the demon, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing any harm. Now the Bible never tells us why Jesus casts out this demon. But we can surmise from the biblical revelation overall that God never uses agents of darkness to proclaim his message. He only uses his own messengers to preach and teach his message. And the kingdom of God does not rely on the kingdom of darkness to do its advertising. This casting out of a demon is the first of 21 miracles recorded in the book of Luke. And what the miracle testifies to is the power of God. Because the kingdom of God is now here, because the king is now here. And what Jesus does is he rebukes the demon-possessed man. Only a superior can rebuke an inferior. And that rebuke demonstrates Christ's authority and his power. And the miracle he subsequently does comes in three parts. The first part of the miracle is silencing the demon against his will so that now he can no longer speak. The second part of the miracle is making the demon come out. And then the third part of the miracle is making the demon come out so that he didn't do the man any harm. Because it was, it was within that demon's will who are always destructive, not constructive. If he had to leave and evacuate the premises, he would try to cause as much damage leaving as he could possible. It's a good thing that Jesus did not listen to it when it said, let us alone. But instead, Jesus touched that man and he healed him by casting that demon out. And what the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us, church, is that Jesus is a healer. He's a restorer. He's a deliverer. Jesus gave this man spiritual restoration here. 
But Jesus also gives us psychological restoration. Jesus also gives us physical restoration. The gospel does not apply to one side of our lives. It applies to our entire person. And when God saves us, when God delivers us, he delivers all of us. So now we're just not the version of us 2.0. We're a brand new creature. We're a brand new creation that is now animated and inspired by his divine power. And what this casting out of the devil shows, it's a miracle. But as with all miracles in the Bible, the miracle does not point to itself. The miracle points to the miracle worker. So what is a biblical miracle? A biblical miracle refers to God's supernatural intervention in the natural world in an extraordinary way that defies what is expected or common. And the resultant sign or wonder by design points to and validates God's truth. Church, if miracles were ever common, they wouldn't be miracles. Now, I'm not going to spend that much time on expositing this miracle because the most awesome, the most marvelous, the most wonderful thing in these verses was not the casting out of a devil. It was the Word of God. It was the teaching that had authority and power. The Bible never says anyone got saved via exorcism. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And make sure the church knows just because someone does an exorcism does not mean they're one of God's agents. Did you know the devil can cast out demons? In that case, it's not actually an exorcism. It's the devil telling one of his foot soldiers to leave for the moment so they can potentially come back later. It's a great trick. If the devil can use one of his false agents to presumably perform an exorcism, what now happens is someone is awed. They are delighted by a sign and wonder so that now what? They look towards the presumed exorcist as someone special and take their eyes off Christ and on the person, on the agent, doing the sign or wonder. What does Jesus say in Matthew 7, 22 to 23? Many will say to me on that day, on the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Church, you may never have a miracle in life. But as long as you have Christ as Lord and Savior, you will be delivered and reconciled to God. Final verses. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. 
At the beginning, the people were amazed by Jesus' authority, by his exousia. Now, they're amazed by his authority and his power. Power comes from the Greek word dunamis. So we get our word dynamite from. This is an explosive, awesome power. And the explosive dunamis of Christ tells the kingdom of darkness that it must bow before the Savior's authority. Because the saving grace, our comfort church, is that ultimate power does not rest in spirits of evil that oppress. Ultimate power rests in Yahweh Elyon, the sovereign God of the universe who sets people free. I'll close by saying this. The Bible tells us that Satan is real. God is real. Satan is real. And how Satan operates is through demons trying to put people in bondage. But I'm going to use the D word now. But God is a deliverer. And because God is a deliverer, that means he executes deliverance. And notice in this narrative, no one delivered themselves. They were delivered as the passive recipients of the power of Jesus Christ. Christians are defined by what's been done to them. And all Christians have been delivered. We've been delivered from darkness to light, from the lies to the truth, from worldliness to holiness, from rebellion to obedience, from forsakenness to forgiveness, from hatred of God and his church to the love of God, his son, his word, and his people. And what Jesus Christ accomplished by his death, by the shedding of his blood, and by the atonement on the cross, he accomplished for us deliverance. Through Christ, through faith in him, he has delivered us from the penalty of sin. He is delivering us from the power of sin now, and he will deliver us from the pollution of sin when we are ultimately glorified with Christ in heaven forever. And that deliverance means a reconciliation with God and a hope of future glory. Now I'm going to close this morning with a few questions that goes back on what we exposited in this morning's sermon. The people of Nazareth were happy when Jesus left their town. And my question to you this morning is, if Jesus left your church, if Jesus left your house, would you be happy or sad? If Jesus left wherever you are right now, would you even notice? Does the word of God offend you? When you hear the truth of God's word, is your gut reaction, let us alone, or do you splendor and marvel by the power and the authority 
of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Are you being transformed by the power of God? Because what these verses tell us is that a man was transformed. He was made new by the power of Christ. Because when you come face to face with Jesus, everything unclean must come out. So my question is, are you being transformed? Are you step by step and day by day being transformed by the power of God, by the power of the crucified, risen Savior, Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for giving us insight and clarity to spiritual unseen realities that oftentimes we seemingly forget. But we ask you to give us a sober, informed, biblical rooting in, angelog in angelology and demonology that we may be appropriate, studious Bible students and have a clear understanding of who we are, of what exists, and the forces at play in the world in which we live. Lord, as we leave here today, we ask you to illuminate us, to lead us, to guide us, and to nurture us with your truth so that our spiritual immune systems will be robust. We will always have an acute sense of discernment, O oh Lord, to know what is true based on your word alone. And we will daily be transformed and grow in you, Lord Jesus. So in being fed by the truth, you will progressively become more and more resistant to the lie. Your power, O oh Lord, is the supreme, awesome power in the entire universe. And we, as your people, rest in you and you alone. Based upon ourselves, O oh Lord, we have no power and have no strength. Which is why, Lord Jesus, we cling to you who is the source of all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.